You ever read these? I read them all the time, but I'm not sure I believe what they have to say. Sometimes the things that these little, little funny-shaped cookies that I get after eating too much salty food just say the lamest things. Uh, just be yourself. You're wonderful. Well, I know that's not true. You will live a long and prosperous life. How about that? That kind of sounds like some sci-fi show that I watched a long time ago. Some of these are kind of funny. Uh, you will be hungry again in one hour. Yeah, that's probably true. Or what about this? That wasn't chicken. Then there's some that just make you think that someone's out there to get you. And I don't know if these are true or not. Actual, we're actual in, actually in fortune cookies or not, but uh, these are really something else. I see money in your future, but it's not yours. Or be cautious when walking in darkness alone. How eerie is that? Or how about this? You'll die early and poorly dressed. The worst, I think, is the end is near and it will be all your fault. <laughs> Fortune cookies, you, you, they make you laugh, right? And they make you, sometimes they make you think, rarely. Any, anyone want this, by the way? There you go. There actually is a person in here right now, and they're going to eat a fortune cookie in just a moment. I don't know about you, but if, if I were to sit down with somebody and they were to tell me, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in your future, I'm not sure how I would feel about that. Would you want to know if I were to tell you what's going to happen to you? What if I were to tell you that I've seen the future and you are going to have the most humiliating, the most uh, disturbing moment of your life, and it's going to leave you powerless, it's going to leave you friendless, it's going to leave you penniless, without an ounce of dignity, and then you're going to die. You might not be all that enthused to hear that, right? Do you want to know your future? Well, it all kind of depends on what that future is. What the future might hold. Ever since the dawn of human history, the future has moved from being this really positive thing. This thing that you can count on, that you are sure of. You know it's going to be good. It moved from that to becoming uh, something that is uncertain. Not necessarily positive. Often filled with regret and with pain. And then it ends. Not such a pleasant thought, is it? Not such a pleasant thought. When I was younger, I looked at the future with this, uh, this excited expectation, this curiosity. The life was full of possibilities, full of discovery, full of hope. It was bright. But as I've gotten older, I've started to see life more as a, as a, as a conveyor belt that I'm just running in place on. And challenge after challenge, and mountain after mountain, and, and pothole after pothole is coming my way. Do I want to know what the future holds? Well, sometimes I'm not really sure. When Jacob rallied all his sons around to give them a blessing or a curse or to tell them what the future might hold for them, I think there was a sense of nervousness there, a sense of nervousness. And I think for some, there was even a sense of, of dread. What's dad going to say? What's this going to mean? 
And I think that's because the sons of Jacob, some of them had behaved so badly in their past that they couldn't help but think that the actions uh, and future events of their life were going to reflect that. And they, they were going to experience some of the fruit. They were going to reap a harvest of the seeds that they had sown when they were younger. That's, that's nothing new, right? That's not, not surprising. In fact, we all kind of know and understand that's how life is. It's the Galatians 6-7 principle. You've heard that verse, right? If you haven't heard that verse, you, you, know, you know the principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Everyone knows that's the way the world works. It's, it's cause and effect. It's Newton's laws of opposing forces, right? And it, it applies to negative behavior, and it applies to good behavior, right? I push you, chances are you're going to push me back. You give me a dirty look, well, I'm going to stick my tongue out at you, because that's what I do, or at least that's what I did when I was five years old. Hopefully I've matured a little bit since then. Probably not. Cause and effect. It's in work, it's in relationships, it's in health, it's in homework and grades, which students are very excited about right about now as school starts. Anything and everything, including all of human history, is, is under this idea of cause and effect. In Genesis 3, humanity, the pinnacle of God's good creation, made a decision that affected everything. It's the ultimate cause and effect event. And as a result, our bodies aren't the same. Not, not the same as they would have been. The earth is not the same as it was intended to be. The weather, the seismic activity, the ozone, even the animals. Romans 8 tells us that the creation's groaning. It's been affected by this decision that humanity made. How about this? The way that we treat each other. That's been affected, hasn't it? We're seeing that all over our country, all over our world right now. The way we treat each other, the way, the way that we look for sustenance, for, for satisfaction, for self-worth. It's not the same. And we could go on and on and on. It, it applies basically to everything. Maybe you've seen that in your life. Maybe you made some decisions back in the, in the distant future, maybe the not-so-distant future, that you're seeing as having a dramatic impact on your life now. Or maybe you're anticipating the impact of it in days, years to come. Cause and effect, it's all over the place. And maybe your future is not as bright as you once thought that it might be. That's the way it was in Jacob's family. Remember Reuben. Reuben, his firstborn son, he tried to hurt his father at least that's what we brought out in our study. It seemed that he was, he was really upset with the way his father handled the situation with his sister Dinah, and he wanted to get back at him. Or maybe he just wanted to really solidify his claim to the family inheritance. And so he did the unthinkable and slept with his father's concubine. Not a good move. He really stepped in it. Now years later, he stands in front of his dying father and waits to hear either a blessing or a curse. What do you think he expected to hear? He must have known it wasn't going to go well. It wasn't going to look good. And it wasn't. It started positive. Listen to this. Genesis 49.3. Jacob says this. Reuben, 
You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Starts off pretty good. Maybe Reuben was surprised. Maybe he was thinking, whoa, dodged a bullet there. But dad keeps going. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, Jacob says. You know when someone shifts from speaking to you in the first person and all of a sudden they're talking to other people about you in the third person, whoa, this is not going to be good. Well, it could be good, it could be really good, or it could be really bad, and it was the latter in this case. He went up to my couch. Can you believe it? All of you here listening, do you see this person before me? Do you know what he did? How could my own flesh and blood do this to me? For Reuben, the future was not looking bright. Then the next two sons didn't bode well for them either. Verse 5, Jacob says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. Because of the actions of these first three sons, things were not going to be as they could have been. Its cause, its effect, their destinies had been altered by the choices that they had made. And now their father is telling them, this is going to be your future, and it's not going to be great. Reuben would not be the one that everyone looked up to any longer. And the descendants of Simeon and Levi, well, they would be divided and they would be scattered. Now, someone might say, well, I I mean, do you you really pay attention to the blatherings of a 147-year-old man? I mean, what did he really know? He's just kind of guessing, isn't he? He's just kind of making this up. He's just kind of maybe trying to, to get a little stab back at them for the misery that they caused him. Well, you know, in ordinary circumstances, I, I would agree. But this was no ordinary man. This was a man who at multiple times over the course of his 147-year-old life had direct communication with God, had conversations with God. Think about that. This was a man who had been radically transformed by the heavy hand, the heavy merciful hand, I might add, of God. He had gone from being a person who relied on his own strength, who relied on his own uh, creative problem solving, to now wholeheartedly trusting in the all-powerful, all-controlling, all-wise God. And his sons knew that. They knew that. And so when he spoke, there's no doubt in my mind that they were thinking, what's dad going to say? This really matters. And it's a good thing that they did too, because in our hindsight, 2020 vision here, we can see that what Jacob said, it took place. Reuben, He didn't have preeminence. His descendants would virtually disappear from the history books. An unremarkable and leaderless 
people his, his, his descendants would become. In fact, one of, the, one of the few times that his tribe is mentioned as having any type of leadership role was in the time when his descendants, Dathan and Abiram, in number 16.1, they rise up and try to fight Moses. Try to convince him, we need to go back. Come on, people, let's start a rebellion. Let's rise up. We're not going into the wilderness any longer with this guy. What a testimony. Jacob said that God would divide and that we scatter Simeon and Levi, and that's exactly what happened. Neither tribe would be given any portion of the promised land. None. The Levites, they would become the priestly tribe, yes, but they weren't allowed to own any bit of land. At this point, I have to wonder. I, I wonder what the other brothers were thinking. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're sitting there and thinking, uh-oh, I think I'm next. What's he going to say about me? It's like one of those moments where the whole family is sitting around and the will is being read. At first you thought, man, what, what good things am I going to get? Dad had a little bit of money. And as the, the will starts being read, you start realizing that this isn't so much dad passing on good things to his children as it is an opportunity for dad to give one last stab from the grave and let you know how much you've disappointed him and how difficult he is going to make life for you. Thankfully, Jacob's words weren't all bad. And things take a turn when he gets to Zebulun. Zebulun was told that he would dwell at the shore of the sea. He would become a haven for ships and his border would be at Sidon. That's not too bad. Not too bad at all. Could be a lot worse. Jacob went on to say that Issachar's people, they would settle in a pleasant land. But then because of the choices that they, they make, they would become enslaved to others. And that's exactly what happens. Then come the blessings on, on Dan and Asher and Naphtali and Benjamin, last of all. And there was some sense of hope there. Life wasn't going to be perfect, but they would experience some blessing. Then there's Joseph. Now, Joseph gets a lot of attention. We can't forget that this family is part of that chosen Abrahamic family and that they were singled out to be light in a weary world. They were going to carry that torch of hope and they would be a blessing to all the people of the earth, remember? We've seen that become a reality. It became a reality in Joseph. When a seven-year famine hit, Joseph was the one who was a blessing. He was the one who had stored up all this food, and people from around the world are coming to him, and he's providing them with food. He's saving lives here. What a blessing Joseph was. He, God literally used him to bless the nations, and that's exactly what Jacob points to here when he addresses Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow. Fruitful bow, bow, bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Like a, like a healthy, thriving fruit tree in, in the garden, the branches go so big and so long, they stretch over the garden wall, now hanging fruit for every passerby to just plick, pick at their leisure and for their enjoyment. That's what Joseph was like. Verse 23 says, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, 
and harassed him. Definitely we saw that in Joseph's past, even what his brothers did to him, let alone Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. Some scholars think that this is also true of his later years in Egypt too, that there were people that came up and, and shot some arrows at him, tried to bring him down. But it says this, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who, is, who was set apart from his brothers." And Joseph's life is a testimony. It's a testimony to the fact that life is full of trouble. And you can probably attest, attest to that as well, right? Life is full of trouble. But here's the deal. If the maker is with you, if the maker is with you, if your reliance is on him, even as you walk through difficult days, he's able to be there with you and able to deliver you through them. In fact, you can be sure that he's using whatever you're going through right now. He's using that. In fact, he has meant that, purposed it, to bring about his greater plan and his greater purposes in your life. And we've talked about that in our study through Genesis. As you and I step into the future, into the unknown, into the uncertain, into the murky and the muddy, as we spend our days wading through this cesspool that has resulted from, from decisions past. If we've placed our trust in God, we do so knowing that we're not alone. We're not alone. Like Jacob's ever-present ladder. You remember that? The direct connection between God that followed him wherever he went. We can have assurance that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46.1. He's there. Now some people might say, well, <laughs> that's great. That, that, that's good. So I can go through life with God beside me, maybe even helping me through life. But isn't there something more? I, my life is troubled. And just knowing that God is with me and may help me here, well, that's not really the hope that I was looking for here. Is that the best that God can do? He's, he's just some celestial prosthetist who, who can give me, craft me a wooden leg so I can hobble through life? I get that. I hear that. That's the best that God can offer me is assurance that he's going to guide me through the difficult times of life, only to let me come to the end of my days to sign off and be done with it. I'm not sure that's the greatest news ever. I'm not sure that's really the hope that I'm looking for. Is that the best that we have to look forward to? Some type of, of fortune through this flawed and frustrating world. But you see, 
if that's understand, our understanding of what God wants to do for us, if that's our understanding of what his great plan is, then we need to check ourselves. And we need to check the book. And we need to come to see that the great hope that God intended from the very beginning, that it's not merely a better life, my best life here on earth. He's not some over-enthusiastic infomercial guy who's trying to sell you some nonstick cookware. There's some, some wrinkle cream that's going to make you look your old, tired face look better. No, his plans are bigger. They're far better than that. Far, far, far better than even putting a, a good political candidate in office. It's about completely and definitively restoring all that he's created back to its proper order and functioning properly under the authority that's supposed to be over it and then pouring good upon good upon good on top of it like, like homemade ice cream being drowned in grandma's secret sauce. I love that stuff. It's about you and I having an unshakable, an unbreakable, an unwreckable, never-ending good future with him as we were meant to have from the very beginning. And all of that's alluded to. It's alluded to in one blessing that Jacob gives. It's the one we skipped over. Maybe you noticed that. Everything. What is this guy doing? <laughs> Does this guy even read the passage here? He missed. He missed the blessing of Jacob of 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 Judah. We're getting there. You might say we saved the best for last. It's it's the blessing that brings blessing upon blessing to all the others. It's the one that would change the nations, that would redeem our wayward history, that would right the wrongs, that would heal the broken, that would restore life to what it was always meant to be. You see, from the very beginning, way back in our, our study of Genesis, we saw a fateful decision was made, made by two people, the first two people. They refused to listen to God. Instead, they decided, we're going to listen to our hearts. We're going to follow our dreams. We're going to do what we want to do because we think we can make a better go of it than just listening to what God has to say for us. Cause and effect. And we're seeing, we're living the effects of that right now, aren't we? Not very pleasant. A curse was placed on them. But you know, even as that curse was placed, even as God declared what life was going to be for them, what it was going to hold, we saw a glimmer of hope. Do you remember? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that may not sound much like hope to you, but make no mistake, it absolutely is. It meant something. It meant that someone was coming. There was going to be someone who eventually was going to be born who would do battle with humanity's enemy. It would take the serpent 
to task, and it would battle the one who put poison in our veins and caused us to make decisions, led us to make decisions that would taint our future. And in the end, he would crush his head. Crush his head once and for all. That faint glimmer of hope, it's important for us to know, that faint glimmer of hope, it happened moments after everything went dark. That's how good God is. Right after it happens, God says, this is what the future is going to hold for you now. But then he drops the hints of hope. It's incredible. Incredible. As the future got darker and obstacles got higher, time and time again through Genesis, we've seen that little flicker. That little flicker of hope. The little flicker of light. Through the waters of judgment. Do you remember that? Through the waters of judgment, God brought one family through. Under a black veil of moon worship, God called a man named Abraham to step away from all that he knew and to step into a future that would change everything. He'd teach him what it meant to trust. He'd teach him what it meant to rely, what it meant to obey God, even when things made no sense at all. And then he would make sure that the torch got passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Over the course of 147 years and much hardship, God would transform that, that man. He'd transform Jacob, that heel-grabbing Jacob, into a man who's utterly broken and fully surrendered to God's leading. The promise, the hope, that glimmer still remained. It was alive. Even though, uh, even through the desperation of that seven-year famine, even under the blinding rays of Egyptian sun worship, it still flickered. And here, as Jacob speaks his final words to open the eyes of his sons to the future, it begins to burn brighter than it ever had before. To Judah, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now Judah wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't the one who was supposed to receive the, the, the birthright. That would go to Joseph, remember? And yet Judah's line would be the one that was singled out for God's special purpose, the psalmist would later write this. The Lord rejected the tent of, jo of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Yes, the sons of Jacob, they would bow down to Joseph just as it was in Joseph's dream so many years ago. But they would also bow to another. They'd bow to Judah. Judah would become a warrior who was celebrated for his victories. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? As, as he rests from devouring his prey, he's so revered, so respected, no one dare disturb him. You don't go up to a lion anytime. You respect Judah as well. 
Now here's where it starts to get really good. This is, this is the best part. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah's line is not just any line. His is the ruling line. His descendants, they would hold that royal scepter which represented power. That is, until a tribute comes. Now, there, this is one of those lines of Scripture where scholars debate how it should be translated, how it should be interpreted. Some versions simply use the Hebrew, and they say, until Shiloh comes. Our, our translation, the ESV, says, until tribute comes. Others say something else, but here's the thing. Where, where there's some debate as to how it should be translated, the basic sense, the basic understanding of what it means, that's, that's widely agreed upon. The 4th century Jewish translation, the, the Targum Onkelos, says it well. Until the Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom, and him shall the nations obey. I like the way the New Living translates it. It puts it this way. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. Do you see what this means? It means that from Judah's line, the chosen one would come. The only one truly deserving of the throne. He's going to have the obedience of the nations that currently rant and rave and rage. We're seeing some of that in our world right now, aren't we? We're seeing a, a nation that is raging. So much frustration, so much pain, so much anger and hatred. But this one, this one who's coming, is going to have all of their obedience. Don't you just long for a better world? Don't you, aren't you aching for change? We've seen politi politicians make those promises, right? I'll bring the change. I'll bring the hope, I'll bring the peace, I'll bring the prosperity. The economy is going to take a turn upward. And they deliver sometimes. But it's never really as much as we need. And it never lasts as long as we need either. My friends, there's hope behind, behind, beyond the mess that we find ourselves in. There's hope. There's unity that's coming. There's peace that will be lasting, but is not found in politics and is not found in social programs or education or, or medical miracles. It's found in the one who was said will come and step into history and take hold of the scepter of Judah. The book of last things, the one that was written by John on that island of Patmos, it reads in chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Have you been weeping? I, I haven't 
had tears come to my eyes, but my soul feels like it's weeping for the things I see happening in our world. Maybe you're experiencing that too. There is so much pain out there. One of the elders said to me, John writes, weep no more. How incredible will that moment be? Weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Verse 9, he writes this, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God for, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Who is, the, who is this ransomed? Uh, who is this one who, who ransomed people with his blood that they might be forgiven their sins and their pasts, pasts uh, be made right with God and then given hope and a future? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the hope. He's the peace. He's the light that the world has been waiting for. He's the one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Oh, I long for that. On the throne of David, that is the the royal throne of the line of Judah, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. My friends, the king has come. He has come. But unlike any other king we've ever known, the, he, he, this king conquers not by taking lives. He conquers by laying his life down. And bearing the guilt and the shame that you and I have built up for ourselves. That's the Lion of Judah. That's the king who will make the lasting difference. The serpent thought that he would won. He thought that he won when he tricked us into shackling ourselves and becoming enemies of our maker. But as the Lion of Judah laid down his life on our behalf, he not only broke what enslaved us, he took the serpent by the throat and crushed his ugly head. And one day, as Ephesians tells us, one day he's going to unite all things to himself. What a great day that's going to be. One day, as Philippians 2.10 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? I'm looking forward to it. But for the time being, you and I look out at a world and we see pain. We see suffering. We see hatred. We see division, deception. We see evil. Never forget that the king has come. The Lion of Judah, who was spoken of so many years ago, has come. And he's coming again. 
and the nations will bow. That's going to be good. So good. Peace, unity, submission to authority. But you know there's more. There's more here in Genesis 49 that points us to the incredible future that we have because of the Lion of Judah. More than just unity. I can't wait for that. But verse 11 says this, The Lion of Judah will be binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, I'm not a wine guy. I'll choose a good cup of coffee over wine any day, any time. But wine in the Bible is a symbol of extravagance, of prosperity, of blessing. When wine flows, it's often a time of celebration. It's when all the stops have been pulled out and goodness, what what is precious, what is decadent, that's poured out all over the place. One of the reasons wine is a big deal, I'm convinced, is because of the time and energy it takes to make it. There's an art to wine, and those of you who know wine, you know this. To make good wine, well, you've got to have good grapes. Well, to make good grapes, you've got to have good ground. And to have good ground, well, you've got to have a, a good environment as well. I've also read that some of the best grapes, they come from the old vines, the ones that have been invested in, who, that have been tended to, that have been cultivated. The vines that have been matured, they, they, they've been cared for over long periods of time. And then then there's the harvesting, right? Then there's the pressing. There's the bottling. There's the fermenting. It takes work. It's a lot of work to make this stuff. You know, part of the curse in Genesis 3 was that working the ground and producing its fruit, that was going to be strenuous. It was going to be sweaty. It was going to even be a painful experience. But you know, there's going to come a day when that's no longer going to be the case. There's going to come the day when all the work has been done. It's all over, finished completely. There's coming a day when the floodgates of God's goodness are open and the Lion of Judah brings so much goodness to the land that that even the very best, the most most precious of, of of, of good things, that's served to a donkey, the cult of a donkey. It's so plentiful that people wouldn't think twice than to use it to wash their clothes, let it get dirty and be unusable, and they're just thrown out. There's so much more of it, it just doesn't matter. The chosen one would enter in a, a, a new age where wine would flow. Isn't it interesting? that when wine ran out at the wedding and the hosts of the wedding started to panic, that Jesus comes in and turns the water to wine. And not just any wine, not just the common stuff, not just the two-buck chuck stuff, but the best wine these people had ever tasted. 
My friends, if your trust is in the Lion of Judah, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, then you have a future that's altogether separate, altogether different than the one that the world without Christ is headed for. So much better. It's one where God's goodness never stops flowing. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the one who is strong and powerful. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. The world we live in and the future it's headed for, well, that's a result of our doing, of our actions. Distant things and not-so-distant decisions that we've made. But because of what Christ has done, the work that He has accomplished, you and I have, have a future that is altogether different. So much better. It, it's cause and effect. Romans 5 says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You and I don't need to anticipate the future with anxiety and fear. You can look forward to the future knowing that the days ahead of you are very, very bright. And they just go on and on and on. And you don't need a stale cookie to give you a glimpse of what that future looks like. If your trust is in the Lion of Judah, then just like all the tribes of Israel, even the ones that were going to face consequences for their actions, you can be sure that your future is filled with the abundance that Christ has to offer. If you don't know Him, if you're not sure you have a relationship with Christ, would you turn to Him now? Would you trust Him? Would you acknowledge your sin? Trust that He took your guilt, your baggage, your sin upon Himself at the cross. That He paid for it there. Would you let Him give you a new life? Hope? A restored relationship with your Maker? The one who loved you enough to allow you to come to be, even though he knew who you were going to turn out to be. And when you trust him, that he has a place for you in eternity. Would you do that now? Maybe you already know him. Maybe you've known him for a long time. Would you set your gaze upon him and what he has promised it's a hope that's sure 
and good. Don't waste your time getting your hopes up and then being dashed to the ground by looking to the promises that this world has to offer you. We do it so many times. We're so gullible, so easily distracted. And we see, ooh, maybe this is going to help. Maybe that's going to help. Maybe this new person's going to help us out here and it's going to be a better place. Don't waste your time. You've trusted in the Lion of Judah for your salvation. Set your sights on things that are above and fill your dreams with the abundance that God has in store for you, the wonderful future that He has in store for you. The Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, our one and only hope. Trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I can't believe that you put up with us. And you do. You love us. We're so easily distracted, so easy to wander. Lord, so very often we try to make things happen on our own and we fall flat on our face, Lord. And we have built for ourselves a future that is tragic. And you broke into history. And you brought Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, that that future might be changed. That we might have a hope. That we might have a rebuilt, restored relationship with you. Lord, I pray if there are those who are listening or watching this who do not trust you, Lord, may, they, this, may this be the moment where they give up. They surrender. They let go of what they were holding on to and they throw yourselves themselves into the open arms of Christ and know what it means to be yours. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are going through life trusting you. Lord, help us to trust you more because it is not easy sometimes. It's not easy during this time. Lord, be our strength. Be our hope. Remind us of the truths that you have given us, the promises that you have delivered to us, Lord. And keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ alone. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.